0: For, as she has deposited them. However, the father frog hops up, twists the garlands dexterously in loose festoons round his legs and thighs, and then retires with his precious burden to some hole in the bank of his native pond, where he lurks in seclusion till the eggs develop. Frogs do not need frequent doses of food; their meals are often few and far between. And during the six or eight weeks that the eggs take to mature, the father probably eats very little, though he may possibly sally forth at night and observed, in search of provender, at the end of that time the devoted parent, foreseeing developments, takes to the water once more, so that the tadpoles may be hatched in their proper element, I may add that this frog is a great musician in the breeding season, but that as soon as the tadpoles are hatched out he loses his voice entirely, and does not recover his manly croak till the succeeding spring, this is also the case with the song of many birds, the crest of the newt the plumes of certain highly decorated trogons and nightjars, and, roughly speaking, the decorative and attractive features of the male sex in general. Such features are given them during the mating period as allurements for their consorts, they disappear, for the time at least, like a ball dress after a ball, as soon as no immediate use can any longer be made of them. Some American tree frogs, on the other hand, imitate rather the motherly solenostoma than the fatherly instincts of the piped fish or the stickleback. These pretty little creatures had a pouch like the kangaroo, but in their case as in the kangaroos it is the female who bears it. Within the safe receptacle the eggs are placed by the male, who pushes them in with his hind feet, and they not only undergo their hatching in the pouch, but also pass through their whole tadpole development in the same place, allowing to the care which is thus extended to the eggs and young. These advanced tree frogs are enabled to lay only about a dozen to fifteen eggs at a time. Instead of the countless hundreds often produced by many of their relations, tree frogs have, of course, in most circumstances much greater difficulty in getting at water than pond frogs, and this is especially true in certain tropical or desert districts. Hence most of the frogs which inhabit such regions have had to find out or invent some ingenious plan for passing through the tadpole stage with a minimum of moisture. The devices they have hit upon are very curious. Some of them make use of the little pools collected at the bases of huge tropical leaf stalks. Like those of the banana plant, others dispense with the aid of water altogether, and glue their new laid eggs to their own backs, where the fry pass through the tadpole stage with the slimy mucus which surrounds them. Nature always discovers such cunning schemes to get over apparent difficulties in her way, and the tree frogs have solved the problem for themselves in half a dozen manners in different localities. Honest of all, perhaps, Is the dodging invented by Darwin's frog, a Chilean species, in which the male swallows the eggs as soon as laid and gulps them into the throat pouch beneath his capacious neck? There they hatch out and pass through their tadpole stage, and when at last they arrive at frogly maturity, they escape into the world through the mouth of their father, the Suriname toad. Represented in number eight, is also the possessor of one of the strangest nurseries known to science. It lives in the dense tropical forests of Guyana and Brazil. And is a true water haunter. But at the breeding season the female undergoes a curious change of integument. The skin on her back grows pulpy, soft, and jelly-like. She lays her eggs in the water, but as soon as she has laid them, her lord and master plasters them onto her impressionable back with his feet. So as to secure them from all assaults of enemies. Every egg is pressed separately into a bed of the soft skin, which soon closes over it automatically. Thus burying each in a little cell or niche. Where it undergoes its further development, the tadpoles pass through their larval stage within the cell, and then hop out, in the four-legged condition. As soon as they have gone off to shift for themselves, the mother toad finds herself with a ragged and honeycombed skin, which must be very uncomfortable. So she rubs the remnant of it off against stones or the bark of trees, and Ray develops a similar back afresh at the next breeding season. Almost never do we find a device in nature which occurs once only. The unique hardly exists, nature is a great copyist, at least two animals of wholly unlike kinds are all but sure to hit independently upon the self same mechanism. So it is not surprising to learn that a catfish has invented an exactly similar mode of carrying its young to that adopted by the Suriname toad, only, here it is on the undersurface, not the upper one, that the spawn is plastered. The eggs of this catfish, whose scientific name is Esprito, are pressed into the skin below the body and so borne about by the mother till they hatch. This is the second instance of which I spoke above, where the female fish herself assumes the care of her offspring, instead of leaving it entirely to her excellent partner. Higher up in the scale of life we get many instances which show various stages in the same progressive development towards greater care for the safety and education of the young. Among the larger lizards, for example, A distinct advance may be traced between the comparatively uncivilized American alligator and his near ally, the much more cultivated African crocodile. On the banks of the Mississippi, the alligator lays a hundred eggs or thereabouts, which she deposits in a nest near the water's edge, and then covers them up with leaves and other decaying vegetable matter. The fermentation of these leaves produces heat and so does for the alligator's eggs what sitting does for those of hens and other birds, the mother deputes her maternal functions so to speak, to a festering heap of decomposing plant refuse, nevertheless, she loiters about all the time, like Miriam round the ark which contained Moses, to see what happens, and when the eggs hatch out, she leads her little ones down to the river, and there makes alligators of them, this is a simple and relatively low stage in the nursery arrangements of the big lizards, the African crocodile, on the other hand, goes a stage higher, it lays only about 30 eggs, but these it buries in warm sand, and then lies on top of them at night, both to protect them from attack and to keep them warm during the cooler hours, in short, it sits upon them, when the young crocodiles within the eggs are ready to hatch, they utter an acute cry, the mother then digs down to the eggs, and lays them freely on the surface, so that the little reptiles may have space to work their way out and impeded, this they do by biting at the shell with a specially developed tooth, at the end of two hours nibbling they are free, and are led down to the water by their affectionate parent. In these two cases we see the beginnings of the instinct of hatching, which in birds, the next in order in the scale of being, has become almost universal. I say almost universal, because even among birds there are a few kinds which have not to this day progressed beyond the alligator level. Australia is the happy hunting ground of the zoologist in search of antiquated forms, elsewhere extinct, and several Australian birds, such as the brush turkeys, still treat their eggs essentially on the alligator method. The cockbirds heap up huge mounds of earth and decaying vegetable matter, as much as would represent several carloads of mold, and in this natural hotbed the hens lay their eggs, burying each separately with a good stock of leaves around it. The heat of the sun and the fermenting mold hatch them out between them, to expedite the process. The birds uncover the eggs during the warmer part of the day, expose them to the sundae and bury them again in the hotbeds towards evening. Several intermediate steps may also be found between the surly stage of communal nesting by proxy and the true hatching instinct, a good one is supplied by the ostrich, which partially buries its eggs in hot sand, but sits on them at intervals, both father and mother birds taking shares by turn in the duties of incubation. The vast subject which I had thus lightly skinned is not without interest, again, from its human implications, savages as a rule produce enormous families, but then, The infant mortality in savage tribes is proportionally great, among civilized races, families are smaller, and deaths in infancy are far less numerous, the higher the class or the natural grade of a stock, the larger as a rule the proportion of children safely reared to the adult age the goal towards which humanity is slowly moving would thus seem to be one where families in most cases will be relatively small perhaps not more on an average than three to a household but where most or all of the children brought into the world will be safely reared, to full maturity, this is already becoming the rule in certain favored ranks of European society, by W.S.B.L.A.D.C.H.L.E., Popular Science Monthly, February, 1897, Copyright by William Stanley Blatchley. 1899. One of the greatest problems which each of the living forms about us has had to solve during the years of its existence on Earth is how best to perpetuate its kind during that cold season which once each year in our temperate zone is bound to come. Many are the solutions to this problem. Each form of life has, as it were, solved it best to suit its own peculiar case. And to the earnest student of nature, there is nothing more interesting than to pry into these solutions and note how varied strange, and wonderful they are, to fully appreciate some of the facts mentioned below it must be borne in mind that there is no such thing as, spontaneous generation, of life, every cell is the offspring of a pre-existing cell, nothing but a living thing can produce a living thing, hence every week that next season will spring up and provoke the farmer's ire, and every insect which will then make life almost intolerable for man or beast, exists throughout the winter in some form, beginning with the earthworms and their kindred, We find that at the approach of winter they burrow deep down where the icy breath of the frost never reaches, and there they live, during the cold season, a life of comparative quiet, that they are exceedingly sensitive to warmth, however, may be proven by the fact that when a warm rain comes some night in February or March, thawing out the crust of the earth, the next morning reveals in our dooryards the mouths of hundreds of the pits or burrows of these primitive tillers of the soil, each surrounded by a little pile of pellets. The castings of the active artisans of the pits during the night before. If we will get up before dawn on such a morning we can find the worms crawling actively about over the surface of the ground. But when the first signs of day appear they seek once more their protective burrows. And only an occasional belated individual serves as a breakfast for the early birds. The eyes of these lowly creatures are not visible. And consist of single special cells scattered among the epidermal cells of the skin. And connected by means of a sensory nerve fiber with a little bunch of nervous matter in the body. Such a simple visual apparatus serves them only in distinguishing light from darkness. But this to them is most important knowledge, as it enables them to avoid the surface of the earth by day. When their worst enemies, the birds, are in active search for them, the freshwater mussels and snails and the crayfish burrow deep into the mud and silt at the bottom of ponds and streams where they lie motionless during the winter. The land snails, in late autumn, crawl beneath logs, and, burrowing deep into the soft mold, they withdraw far into their shells, then each one forms with a mucus secretion to thin transparent membranes, one across the opening of the shell and one a little farther within, thus making the interior of the shell perfectly airtight, therefore five or six months he sleeps, free from the pangs of hunger and the blasts of winter. And when the balmy breezes of spring blow up from the south he breaks down and devours the protecting membrane and goes forth with his home on his back to seek fresh leaves for food and to find for himself a mate. Next in the scale come the insects, which comprise four-fifths of all existing animals. And each one of the mighty hordes seen in summer has passed the winter in some form. One must look for them in strange places and under many disguises, for they cannot migrate, as do the majority of the birds. Nor can they live an active life while the source of their food supply, the plants, are inactive. The majority of those insects which in May or June will be found feeding on the buds or leaves of our trees, or crawling worm-like over the grass of our lawns, or burrowing beneath the roots of our garden plants, are represented in the winter by the eggs alone. These eggs are deposited in autumn by the mother insect, on or near the object destined to furnish the young, or larvae, their food. Each egg corresponds to a seed of one of our annual plants, being, like it, but a form of life so fashioned and fitted as to withstand for a long period intense cold, the mother insect, like the summer form of the plant, succumbing to the first severe frost. Thus myriads of the eggs of grasshoppers are in the early autumn deposited in the ground, in compact masses of 40 to 60 each. About mid-April they begin to hatch, and the sprightly little insects, devoid of wings, but otherwise like their parents, begin their life work of changing grass into flesh. A comparatively small number of insects pass the winter in the larval or active stage of the young. Of these, perhaps the best known is the brown, woolly worm, or hedgehog caterpillar. As it is familiarly called, it is thickly covered with stiff black hairs on each end, and with reddish hairs on the middle of the body. These hairs appear to be evenly and closely shorn, so as to give the animal a velvety look, and as they have a certain degree of elasticity and the caterpillar curls up at the slightest touch, it generally manages to slip away when taken into the hand, beneath loose bark, boards, rails, and stones, this caterpillar may be found in midwinter, coiled up and apparently lifeless, on the first bright, sunny days of spring it may be seen crawling rapidly over the ground, seeking the earnest vegetation which will furnish it a literal breakfast, in April or May the chrysalis, Surrounded by a loose cocoon formed of the hairs of the body interwoven with coarse silk, may be found in situations similar to those in which the larva passade the winter. From this, the perfect insect, the Isabella tiger moth, Pirarchia Isabella smith, emerges about the last of June. It is a medium-sized moth, dull orange in color, with three rows of small black spots on the body, and some scattered spots of the same color on the wings. By breaking open rotten logs one can find in midwinter the grubs or larvae of many of the wood-boring beetles. And, beneath logs and stones near the margins of ponds and brooks, hordes of the maggots or larvae of certain kinds of flies may often be found huddled together in great masses. The larvae of a few butterflies also live over winter beneath chips or bunches of leaves near the roots of their food plant, or in webs of their own construction, which are woven on the stems close to the buds whose expanding leaves will furnish them their first meal in spring. Many insects pass the winter in the quiescent or purple stage, a state exceedingly well fitted for hibernating, requiring as it does, no food, and giving plenty of time for the marvelous changes which are then undergone. Some of these pupae are enclosed in dense silken cocoons, which are bound to the twigs of the plants upon which the larvae feed, and thus they swing securely in their silken hammocks through all the storms of winter. Perhaps the most common of these is that of the brown cecropian moth. was cecropia l the large oval cocoon of which is a conspicuous object in the winter on the twigs of our common shade and fruit trees. Many other pupae may be found beneath logs or on the underside of bark, and usually have the chrysalis surrounded by a thin covering of hairs, which are rather loosely arranged. A number pass the cold season in the earth with no protective covering whatever. Among these is a large brown chrysalis with a long tongue case bent over so as to resemble the handle of a jug. Every farm boy has plowed or spaded it up in the spring. And is it but the pupa of the large sphinx moth? proto hub, the larva of which is the great green worm, with a horn on its tail. So common on tomato plants in the late summer. Each of the winter forms of insects above mentioned can withstand long and severe cold weather in fact. May be frozen solid for weeks and retain life and vigor both of which are shown when warm weather and food appear again, indeed, it is not an unusually cold winter, but one of successive thawings and freezings, which is most destructive to insect life, a mild winter encourages the growth of mold which attacks the hibernating larvae and pupae as soon as, from excessive rain or humidity, they become sickly, and it also permits the continued activity of insectivorous mammals and birds, thus, moles, shrews, and field mice. Instead of burying themselves deeply in the ground, run about freely during an open winter and destroy enormous numbers of pupae, while such birds as the woodpeckers, titmice, and chickadees are constantly on the alert, and searching in every crevice and cranial fence and bark of tree for the hibernating larvae, of the creeping, wingless creatures, which can ever be found beneath rocks, rails, chunks, and especially beneath those old decaying logs which are half buried in the rich vegetable mold. The myriapods, or thousand legs, deserve more than a passing notice. They are typical examples of that great branch of the animal kingdom known as arthropods, which comprises all insects and crustaceans. Each arthropod has the body composed of rings placed end to end and bearing jointed appendages, and in the myriapods each ring and its appendages can be plainly seen, whereas in the higher forms of the branch many of the rings are so combined as to be very difficult to distinguish. Full 40 kinds of myriapods occur in any area comprising 100 square miles in the eastern United States. About 25 of them go by the general name of thousand legs or millipedes, as each has from 40 to 55 cylindrical rings in the body and two pairs of legs to each ring. The other 15 belong to the centipede group, the body consisting of about 16 flattened segments or rings, each bearing a single pair of legs when disturbed. The thousand legs, generally coils up and remains motionless, shamming death, or playing possum, as it is popularly put, as a means of defense, while the centipede scampers hurriedly away and endeavors to hide beneath leaf, chip, or other object, all those found in the northern states are perfectly harmless, the true centipede, whose bite is reputed much more venomous than a reoli island being found only in the south, true some of the centipede group can pinch rather sharply with their beetle-like jaws, and one, our largest and most common species, a brownish-red fellow about three inches long and without eyes, can even draw blood if its jaws happen to strike a tender place. When handled it always tries to bite, perhaps out of revenge for the abominably long Latin name given it by its describer. In fact the name is longer than the animal itself sex spinosus, spinosusae being its cognomen in full. With such a handle attached to it, who can blame it for attempting to bite? Yet, to the scientist up on his lab, each part of the above name bears a definite and tangible meaning. All the myriapods found in the woods and fields feed upon decaying vegetation, such as leaves, stems of weeds, and rotten wood. And in winter, three or four species can usually be found within or beneath every decaying log or stump. One species with very long legs, scutigraff or such raff. Is often found in damp houses or in cellars. It is sometimes called the wall sweeper on account of its rapid and daily gait, and is even reputed to prey upon cockroaches and other household pests. Spiders, which do not undergo such changes as do most of the common six foot insects, winter either as eggs or in the mature form. The members of the sedentary or web spinning group, as a rule, form nests in late autumn, in each of which are deposited from 50 to 80 eggs which survive the winter and hatch in the spring, as soon as the food supply of mats, flies, and mosquitoes appear. The different forms of spiders' nests are very interesting objects of study. Some are those close, spun flat, button-shaped objects, about half an inch in diameter, which are so common in winter on the underside of bark, chunks and flat rocks. Others are balloon-shaped and attached to weeds. Within the latter the young spiders often hatch in early winter, make their first meal off their empty egg cases, and then begin a struggle for existence, the stronger preying upon the weaker until the south winds blow again, when they emerge and scatter far and wide in search of more nutritious sustenance. The, wandering, spiders never spin webs, but run actively about and pounce upon their prey with a tiger-like spring. Six or eight of the larger species of this group winter in the mature form beneath logs and chunks, being often frozen solid during cold weather but thawing out as healthy as ever when the temperature rises, retiring beneath the loose fitting bark of hickory or maple trees. A number of the smaller tube-weaving spiders construct about themselves a protecting web of many layers of the finest silk. Within the snug retreat they lie from November until April a handsome, small, black fellow, with green jaws and two orange spots on his abdomen, being the most common species found motionless within the seeming shroud of silk on a day in midwinter. In any northern state as many as four hundred different kinds of the 6 foot or true insects, in the winged or adult stage, may be taken in winter by anyone who is so disposed, and knows where to search for them. Among the orthoptera, the grouse grasshoppers, live during the cold season beneath the loose bark of logs, or beneath the bottom rails of the old Virginia worm fences. From these retreats every warm, sunny day tempts them forth in numbers. On such occasions the earth seems to swarm with them as they leap before the intruder, their hard bodies striking the dead leaves with a sound similar to that produced by falling hail. The common field cricket belongs also to the orthoptera, and the young of various sizes winter under rails and logs, bidding defiance to jack frost from within a little burrow or pit beneath the protecting shelter. The true bugs, or hemiptera, hibernate in similar places, squash bugs, chinch bugs, stink bugs, and others being easily found in numbers beneath loose bark or hidden between the root leaves of mullein and other plants. Nearly 300 species of Coleoptera, or beetles, occupy similar positions. Almost any rotten log or stump when broken open discloses a half-dozen or more, horn or, best beetles. Pacellus cornutus, l great, shining, clumsy, black fellows with a curved horn on the head. They are often utilized as horses by country children the horn furnishing an inviting projection to a which may be fastened, by a thread or cord, chips and pieces of bark to be dragged about by the strong and never lagging beast of burden, when tired of, playing horse, they can make of the insect an instrument of music, for, when held by the body, it emits a creaking, hissing noise, produced by rubbing the abdomen up and down against the inside of the hard, horny wing covers, the spiel sits its entire life in cavities in the rotten wood on which it feeds, and when it wishes a larger or more commodious home it has only to eat the more. The handsome and beneficial lady beetles winter beneath fallen leaves or between and beneath the root leaves of the mullein and the thistle. Our most common species, the 13 spotted lady beetle, Magia michalatedagius gregarious, collecting together by thousands on the approach of cold weather, and lying huddled up like sheep until a breath of spring gives them the signal to disperse. Snaw beetles galore can be found beneath piles of weeds near streams and the borders of ponds or beneath chunks and logs in sandy places. All are injurious, and the farmer by burning their hibernating places in winter can cause their destruction in numbers. Roveels, beetles, ground beetles, and many others live deep down in the vegetable mold beneath old logs, where they are, no doubt, as secure from the ice skin as if they followed the swallow to the tropics of the diptera, or flies but few forms winter in the perfect state, yet the myriads of houseflies and their kin, which next summer will distract the busy housewife, are represented in winter by a few isolated individuals which creep forth occasionally from crevice or cranny and greet us with a friendly bow. in midwinter one may also see in the air swarms of small, mad-like insects, they belong to this order and live beneath the bark of freshly fallen beech and other logs, on warm, Sunny days, they go forth in numbers for a sort of rhymatical courtship. Their movements, while in the air, being peculiar in that they usually rise and fall in the same vertical line, performing a curious aerial dance, which is long continued. Among the dozen or more butterflies and moths which winter in the perfect state, the most common and the most handsome is the Camberwell Beauty or Morning Cloak, Vanessa and atyopella, a large butterfly whose wings are a rich purplish brown above, duller beneath, and broadly margined with a yellowish band. It is often found in winter beneath chunks which are raised a short distance above the ground, or in the crevices of old snags and fence rails. It is then apparently lifeless, with the antennae resting close along the back, above which the wings are folded. But one or two warm days are necessary to restore it to activity. And I have seen it on the wing as early as the 2d of March, hovering over the open flowers of the little snow trillium. All the species of ants survive the winter as mature forms either in their nests in the ground or huddled groups in half-rotten logs and stumps, while here and there beneath logs a solitary queen bumblebee, bald hornet, or yellow jacket is found the sole representatives of their races. Thus insects survive the winter in many ways and in many places, some as eggs, others as larvae, still others as pupae, and a large number as adults all being able to withstand severe cold and yet retain vitality sufficient to recover, live, grow and replenish the earth with their progeny when the halcyon days of spring appear once more. In the scale of animal life the vertebrates or backboned animals succeed the insects. Beginning with the fishes, we find that in late autumn they mostly seek some deep pool in pond or stream at the bottom of which the water does not freeze. Here the herbivorous forms eke out a precarious existence by feeding upon the innumerable diatoms and other small plants which are always to be found in water, while the carnivorous prey upon the herbivorous. And so maintain the struggle for existence. The moving to these deeper channels and pools in autumn and the scattering in the spring of the assembly which has gathered there constitute the so called migration of fishes, which is far from being so extensive and methodical as that practiced by the migratory birds. Many of the smaller species of fishes, upon leaving these winter resorts, ascend small, clear brooks in large numbers for the purpose of depositing their eggs, as, when hatched in such a place, the young will be comparatively free from the attacks of the larger carnivorous forms. Among the lowest vertebrate often found in numbers in early spring in these meadow rills and brooks is the lamprey, Ammocetes branchiales l or lampreel, as it is sometimes called. It has a slender eel-like body, of a uniform leg nor blackish color, and with seven purse-shaped gill openings on each side, the mouth is fitted for sucking rather than biting, and with it they attach themselves to the bodies of fishes and feed on their flesh which they scrape off with their rasp-like teeth. Later in the season they disappear from these smaller streams, probably returning in midsummer to deeper water. For oh who studied their habits closely, says of them, They are rarely seen on their way downstream, and it is thought by fishermen that they never return, but waste away and die, clinging to rocks and stumps of trees for an indefinite period, a tragic feature to the scenery of the river bottoms worthy to be remembered with Shakespeare's description of the sea floor. A few of the fishes, as the mudminnow and smaller catfishes, together with most frogs, turtles, and salamanders, on the approach of winter, burrow into the mud at the bottom of the streams and ponds, or beneath logs near their margins, there they live without moving about and with all the vital processes in a partially dormant condition, thus needing little if any food, the box tortoise or dryland terrapin, the common toad, and some salamanders burrow into the dry earth usually going deep enough to escape frost, while snakes seek some crevice in the rocks or hole in the ground where they coil themselves together, oftentimes in vast numbers, and prepare for their winter sleep. In an open winter this hibernation is often interrupted, the animal emerging from its retreat and seeking its usual summer haunts as though spring had come again. Thus I have, on one occasion, seen a soft-shelled turtle moving gracefully over the bottom of a stream on a day in late December and had in mid-January captured snakes and salamanders from beneath a pile of driftwood, where they had taken temporary refuge, with frogs, especially, this hibernation is not a perfect one, and there is a doubt if in a mild winter some species hibernate at all, for example, the little cricket frog or peeper, has been seen many times in mid-winter alongside the banks of flowing streams, and during the open winter of 1888-89 numerous specimens of leopard and green frogs were seen on different occasions in December and January, while on February 18th they, together with the peepers, were in full course of our mammals, a few of the rodents or norse, as the ground dogs, gophers and